Thank you to Mark for putting all of that together. For Olivia for starring. Pam for being an angel. Uh, uh, Romans chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. Also wanted to make mention, um, and again, that was very good. Thank you, guys. That, uh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, Mark. Um, Romans chapter 4 is where we'll be today. Also want to mention, in the back, we are working on updating the directory. We have a rough draft. We are still adding some of the new photos I've gotten. So if your photo's not in there yet, we're, we're working on that. The main thing is to check out the text of what it says, um, especially if you had wanted to change anything, like a phone number. Some people I know got rid of landlines. Some people moved. Uh, so if any of that stuff is different, um, it should be accurate, but just you know, give that a look. And uh, again, it's a rough draft. We're still formatting it. There's some, some boxes around some of the pages. That's kind of the last thing we're gonna take care of, uh, but just take a look and make sure that the, the text is correct as far as what's in there. And uh, good morning. Um, I was hoping when Mark said, said who was in the performance, when he said my name, there was gonna be a lot of cheering and woos, but no, there weren't. But, um, I was also trying to figure out you know, I was trying to get my motivation, and uh, you know, since I'm behind them pretending to preach, should I use like really like, much bigger gestures than I normally use? Or, but, um, but again, that was very good. Hope everyone had a good Easter last week. Uh, so great to see so many people from the surrounding community at that service. Um, people from here, people from Grace, and a lot of people just from from town, from the again surrounding areas. Um, We've been in John all year, and again, it's been such a good, enriching time to go through the Gospel of John, uh, taking a break from John this morning, and possibly next week too. Uh, and I think that's good to do from time to time, especially when going through a longer book, to, to get a little bit of a, of a break and, and see something else, kind of cleanse the palate for a moment, uh, and then from that to be energized to get right back into it. And so again, it'll probably be a couple of weeks before we get back into John. I have an idea for next week, but um, we only have a few more Sundays left in the Gospel of John. And uh, I'm still kicking around a couple of ideas for what to preach after John. But I think one thing for sure that I would like to do at the end of the summer is start one of Paul's letters. And uh, so... For that reason, today we're in Romans chapter 4. A little bit of a preview of that. We're going to look at a favorite section from Paul's letter to the Romans where he talks about uh, the subject of justification. So Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. I read this passage about 15 times during the skit, so hopefully I can say it correctly. <laughs> what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven 
and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And again, we thank you for that, that skit, that little piece of, of drama, Lord, that reminds us of realities that exist in the spiritual realm. Lord, we thank you that we have a, a Savior who redeems. Lord, we have a God who loves us. Lord, we uh, pray for our time this morning as we study in your word. We thank you so much for everyone who's here today. Lord, may we be pointed to your truth and gospel. Lord, we, we just praise you, Lord, that you are a good God. May that be the foundation of our lives, the basis for our joy. Lord, may we have hope and love in that. In Jesus' name, amen. When I lived in Minnesota as a pastor, me and my good friend and former pastor, Eric, at that church, we used to meet every week. We would talk about church stuff. We'd pray for the church. In one of our earliest meetings, Pastor Eric asked me how I would define faith. I don't remember exactly how I answered that question. I'm sure I said something that was fine, that was adequate. I'm sure whatever I said mentioned probably ideas of belief and trust. I might have referenced Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, which says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But Eric shared a thought with me that's always stuck with me. When we think of biblical faith, instead of simply focusing on a definition, the Bible gives us a person. Abraham. Abraham is the central figure of the faith in the Old Testament, the central human figure. He's the one from whom the Jewish people came. He's the one through whom God made his covenant promises of land and offspring and blessings. But in Abraham's story, we're also pointed to his belief, to his faith. And more importantly, Abraham's story points us to the God in whom he believed. And as the Apostle Paul talks about faith in the book of Romans, he will point us to the example of Abraham's faith. With that, we come to our passage this morning, and we'll look at it in four parts. The main idea of this passage, not only does God justify the ungodly, God only justifies the ungodly. And with that, we come to our first part. We cannot be saved by what we do. Verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What was gained by Abraham in the way he lived his life, about his morality? What did that get him? Paul will say, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If Abraham was justified by works, that is, if he was made right with God based on how good he was, then he would have something to boast about. If he could earn his way into heaven, he could boast. He could say, see, I did this. I earned this. I deserve to be here. A few years back, former New York City mayor Michael Bloomberg talked about heaven in an interview. Bloomberg looked at his record and things that he had accomplished as the mayor of New York City. Things he had done with regulations on smoking bans, gun laws, things to try to curb obesity. Bloomberg said in the interview, I'm telling you, if there's a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. 
The biblical teaching is that we are sinful people before a righteous God and that we cannot do enough good to outweigh our own sin. We also cannot change the fact that we have a sinful nature. A person can be very nice, can do a lot of good things for people, can be very caring and compassionate. But those are not the things that enable you to stand before Almighty God and say, let me in. I deserve to be here. That's not how it works with God. It's not about doing enough good to outweigh the bad. It's not about tipping the scales in your favor. Doing enough good things. If you do one bad thing, you can't erase that by doing two good things. If you do something really bad, you can't take that away by doing something really good. And talking about the human condition of sin, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Later in that same section, Paul will say, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are sinful and we cannot fix the problem of our own sin. We cannot do it by our works. In Ephesians 2, Paul, the same man who wrote Romans, said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, what Bloomberg said in that quote that I referenced a moment ago is something that I think is in line with so much of the thinking of our society today. Our world lifts up the goodness of man and says that we are good. We are worthy. The biblical teachings of sin and our inability to earn God's favor offends the sensibilities of our world. Every two years, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research do the State of Theology, a survey of professing American Christians. In the most recent survey of 2020, when asked if God accepts the worship of all religions, 42% of professing Christians agreed with that statement. It's a popular idea even in churches. And it's the popular idea of our world. But it's not what the Bible teaches. And it is a belief which undermines Christ and the gospel. Jesus did not go through the agony of the cross to show us that the gospel doesn't matter. Jesus didn't die for our sins to show us that there was another way. And he did not die for our sins to show us that we can be good enough on our own. It was all because there is no other way. It's good to be nice. It's good to be a good person. But the problem is when we think that we can be good enough to merit God based on our own works. But the good news is that we have a Savior who can. That brings us to our second point. We are saved by faith. Romans 4 verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's quoting from Genesis. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. We are saved by faith. We are justified by faith. Justification, being justified, is to have right legal standing before God. It's courtroom language in the New Testament. Now, I've already referenced Abraham. I think it's helpful now to consider for a moment where Genesis tells us that Abraham believed. It's foundational to the whole Bible. Paul mentions it here in Romans 4. Paul will talk about this verse in Galatians chapter 3. 
We see this referenced in James chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 11. That's four books in the New Testament that all refer to Abraham being justified, being counted righteous because of his belief. So in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham and his wife Sarah are both old. Sarah is well past childbearing age. But in spite of their age, God promises that he would give this couple a child. And not only that, that from this child would come offspring, which would be as innumerable as the stars. God made a promise that seemed impossible in Genesis 15. But it says that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. It was through Abraham that God instituted circumcision as a covenant sign with his people. Abraham was obedient to that. God finally does bless Abraham and Sarah with the promised son, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 21. And in the following chapter, God tells Abraham to take Isaac upon a mountain and sacrifice him. Abraham is willing to do this, to sacrifice the promised son out of trust and obedience to God. Ultimately, if you know the story, the Lord intervenes. He does not make Abraham go through with that because that was never the point. God acknowledges the reverence that Abraham had in being willing to trust God to that incredible extreme. And certainly that story also points us forward to the gospel and Christ, the son who was not spared. Abraham walked in obedience to God. And people can focus on that obedience. But what precedes that for Abraham is faith. And if you keep reading through the rest of Romans chapter 4, more and more Paul talks about this idea. That his faith precedes any obedience. That his faith precedes the law. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Before Abraham listened, he believed. There is no earning favor with God. We believe. Abraham believed what God promised. And by trusting in God, God declared him righteous. He was justified. And again, to our world, that is either the best news that there is, or it's offensive. It's the aroma of life, or the stench of death. It's the sweet sound of amazing grace, or it is utter foolishness. What is it to you? Do you love the gospel of grace? Or do you ultimately believe in a gospel of works? That you and anyone else can be made right with God based on your own goodness. There are really only two options that can be believed. When you really get down to the bedrock of what we believe about God. What makes us right with him? Is it ultimately his grace? Or is it ultimately our own goodness? People like to mock the idea of saving faith. People throw out hypotheticals, so, oh, so a person can just say they're a Christian and do whatever they want. The person who thinks that way is a person who has not truly understood the gospel. Because to understand the gospel and to know that the grace of Jesus is with you, that Jesus is gracious towards you, is meant to be something that is so transformative that it does result in a life that is changed, that is impacted. And certainly God does want us to live lives to his glory. But it's not that a changed life, it's not that living a godly life is the basis of our salvation. It's the other way around. It's the idea that a changed life, living to God's glory, is meant to be the result of a sincere faith. 
It is not the catalyst for it. Just saying that you have faith and having no desire to know God, having no recognition of your sin, having no desire to pursue Christ, those are indicators and warnings of a person who doesn't truly have faith. We're called to real faith, to really believing. All the things Abraham did out of faith. Again, those all came after Abraham had initially trusted God. Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In that moment, it was credited to him as righteousness. Once and forever. It wasn't that Abraham believed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness if he then did X, Y, and Z. It wasn't that Abraham believed, and that was a good start to get him rolling down the path of righteousness. That Abraham believed, and God counted it as righteousness. He trusted the Lord, and that faith was the basis for God's acceptance. It is faith that justifies, and it has always been faith that justifies. So far, we've talked about how we cannot be saved by works, how we are saved by faith. Third point, we talk about the gift of grace. We continue in our passage. There are certainly similarities between this third section and what Paul has already talked about. Paul begins in verse 4 by giving an illustration. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now, that's certainly true in the real world. If you have a job or you have a contract to do some work, you have every right, once you've completed those hours or once you've completed that job, to be able to go to the person, to your boss or to the person who hired you, and to say, give me my money, pay up. That's how the world often works. That's how the world does work. But that's how we also oftentimes tend to think about faith. Like we can just be good enough. Like we can just earn our own way. But in verse 5, Paul quickly shifts the idea when he says, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what Paul is saying is that we cannot earn anything with God but that God freely gives. We cannot earn, but when we have faith, God gives to us as though we had earned it. Again, that will either be good news to you or an offense. It is either the wisdom of the gospel or it is foolish. It is either wonderful or terrible. The person who loves the gospel rejoices that this is true because they realize that they could never earn God. The person who despises the gospel hates this message because they would rather try to pay their own way. But we can't. I read a story this week about a a food critic named Paul Ginther who had set out with the goal to eat at the 100 best restaurants in the world. For some of these restaurants, they went to great lengths to accommodate him in this mission. Some chefs stayed late to feed him. Some places squeezed him in without a reservation or opened up early so that he could experience the food. With 99 restaurants down, there was one that eluded him. A Japanese restaurant called Sushi Saito in Japan. This is an exclusive restaurant open to members only. You cannot make reservations. You have to be a member or a friend of a member to get in. No reservations, no special treatment, no exceptions, no way to pay for his own table. He must be invited in. 
With the gospel, there is nothing we can do to earn our way in. But we have a Savior who invites us to his table. There's nothing we can do to earn a reservation. But we have someone who's a member who invites us to be his friends. Some oppose the gospel of grace because it seems unfair that God would simply forgive. It is unfair. But as sinful people before a righteous God, we don't want what is fair. Because what is fair would be God's righteous judgment. But by faith in Christ, God looks to the righteousness of Christ and counts that as if it were our own. Jesus takes our place. We come to our third point. Grace and the forgiveness of sins. Now, earlier in this section, Paul was talking about Abraham. In this final section, Paul will shift his attention to another major figure of the Old Testament, David. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And Paul will quote David from Psalm 132. Just as Paul has been talking about grace apart from works and grace as a gift, he will point to David as praising God for his grace. Verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We are not forgiven by the good things we do. What this quote is again, what this scripture is again pointing to is the idea that by the grace of God, he does not hold the bad things we do against us when we have faith. That is the gospel. The gospel is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. It is entirely the work of God. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. It's not blessed are the moral or blessed are people who are pretty good people. Blessed are those who are true to themselves. It's assuming we sin when it says whose sins are covered. Imagine a blanket being thrown over your sins. They're totally out of sight. Our sins are covered. They're taken away as far as the east is from the west. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Again, the point isn't that we are good and that God rewards that goodness. It's that we are bad, but that God accepts us anyway. The gospel isn't about how good we are. It's that God loves us even though we sin. And it's that we continue to sin. God forgives when we come to him in faith. That is credited to us as righteousness. All are welcome to God who justifies the ungodly. And this was a message that David needed just as much as we do. David, the king of Israel. David, another link in the line that led to Christ. David, a man whom the Bible describes as being a man after God's own heart. But he was still a sinful person. I know I've talked about some of his exploits before in the Old Testament. David had an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba and got her pregnant. When he learns of this, David sends Bathsheba's husband Uriah to the front lines in battle and has him killed so that he can marry Bathsheba. A truly terrible and wicked thing that David did. Whatever is the worst thing that you've done in your lifetime is probably not as bad as that. David is hard to beat. But there is no sin so great that it is beyond the reach of what God can forgive. And God is glorified in his forgiving of sins. 
Christ is glorified when we believe in him and know the grace that he offers. In a well-known passage from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been invited to a dinner party when a woman washes his feet. Luke chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city, in other words, a prostitute, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. This woman realizes something about who Jesus is. And she is humbled in his presence. The Pharisees, the earners, the religious people, the folks who wanted to try to rely on their own goodness and obedience to the law, they see what this woman does. And they're disgusted by her. Jesus looks to the woman with grace and compassion. The Pharisees look at her with scorn and judgment. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he turned to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. For she's a sinner. All they can see is this woman's sin while blind to their own. And so Jesus tells a parable when he says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Jesus will go on to say, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. <coughs> Excuse me. That is the grace of God. It is the hope for the world. To understand that God loves us and that Christ will forgive us in spite of our sin. And to truly know that is a life-changing revelation. From this passage, we see that we are unable to live up to God's righteousness. But that he offers grace and does not count our sins against us when we come to him by faith. Do you believe that? Again, our world likes to point to our own goodness as the basis of our worthiness before God. The world likes to think that that is the gospel. But what do you believe? Is it in yourself and your ability to be good enough and save yourself? Or is it in the Savior who promises salvation and who died so you can live? I'll close with this. It's a point I've made before, but I think it bears repeating here. It's the idea that we don't even live up to our own standards. We don't live up to our own moral standards. You know things that you've done in life that have hurt others that you regret. You've done things in your life that you wish you could take back. You've said things to people that you wish you could unsay. You've thought things about people you probably wish you could unthink. We try to be good, but we know we don't live up. We know we're not okay. You go to a bookstore and the self-help and self-improvement books are often the biggest section. We know that we're a mess. Our society likes to affirm us and tell us that we're okay. But deep down, in our heart of hearts, deep down when we're up in the middle of the night, deep down when something that we've done or said 
flashes to our awareness, we know that we're not. I'm not talking about other people. I'm not talking about our society being messed up. That you yourself, you know you're not perfect. We don't live up to our own standards. And we certainly don't live up to the standards of a perfect and holy God. But there is grace. This week I read an editorial. It's about 20 years old and New York City judge who told a story of a young man who had been convicted of committing a murder. The judge said that the young man had been emotionless during the trial, just looked forward with a laser-like stare. At the sentencing, the mother and grandmother of his victim were permitted to speak. They looked right at this convicted killer as he continued to have this cold, laser-like expression. The victim's mother said, I have no hard feelings. I could never hate you. Following the broken-hearted mother, the grandmother also looked directly into the defendant's eyes and spoke unflinchingly about her loss. She said, you broke the golden rule, loving God with all your heart and soul and mind. You broke the law, loving your neighbor as yourself. I am your neighbor. So anyway, she continued, you have my address. You want to write? I'll write you back. Because I sat here two weeks. And for 16 months, I tried to hate you. But you know what? I could not hate you. Observing this, the judge writes, After the grandmother finished, I looked at the defendant. His head was hanging low. There was no more swagger, no more stare. The destructive and evil forces within him collapsed helplessly before, his, before this remarkable display of humanness. End quote. His heart was touched by undeserved grace. And knowing the grace of Jesus, not just some vague, yeah, I'm a Christian, but truly knowing the grace of Christ, that you're a sinner, that you're guilty, that you stand convicted, but that Jesus forgives you, and that he actually took your penalty upon himself. Truly knowing that is a powerful thing. Have you believed in the gospel? Have you trusted in Jesus? When you die, do you think that you'll be able to say that you've done enough to get to heaven? The Bible says we cannot, but it also says that we believe, and when we believe, it is counted as righteousness. A song that we sang in the beginning, providentially because it was on my mind this morning thinking about this passage, Amazing Grace, again, probably the most well-known hymn in the English language, talks about understanding grace and a life that is changed because of it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, yet now I see. And when we see Christ and the grace that he offers, there is forgiveness and eternal life. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this day. We thank you for your holy word. Lord, may we be a church of people who know the gospel and who show the gospel in the way that we live our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.